Well, it's just my opinion, but I think Jesus should have been in the witness protection program. (laughs) A price was put on his head by the religious leaders of the day. And the question was, will he show up for Passover? I think he had every right to, if he was coming, slip in unseen to some back street in Jerusalem and do what he wanted to do, but that wouldn't do. No, Jesus came boldly into the city on what we call Palm Sunday with the focus and the limelight shining only on him. By the way, something he'd never done before. He was always withdrawing from the crowds, but now, for some reason, He wants to come in in such an impressive way that no one can miss the moment. We pick up the story in Luke 19, although all the Gospels will give us something of this wonderful day. And it's helpful to remember that Jesus had been traveling for about nine months from the upper region of the Galilee and in something of a zigzag fashion came south into Samaria and down the Jordan Rift Valley and then on the east side of the Jordan into Perea until he finally came to Jericho and then the trip, which is almost all uphill, a little less than 20 miles from Jericho to Jerusalem to arrive at the right hour, all timed to be there at Passover. The hour had been established from eternity and Jesus was going to arrive at Passover. But I don't think you could really understand what is happening uh, in, in this time when he comes into the city and unless you understand what happened in Jericho. This is the early part of chapter 19. So Jesus comes into Jericho. By this time, there is a crowd snowballing in numbers coming from all the way in the northern region down to the city of Jericho, following and listening to his every word. And there he engages a hated man who was a tax collector by the name of Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus ends up being converted. And Jesus makes this statement to the shocked crowds, the son of man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. Luke 19.10, son of man? It was as they were listening to this that we come to verse 11 in chapter 19. While they were listening, he went on to tell them a parable Because he was near to Jerusalem and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to come at once. That key verse sets the scene for all that will take place in Jerusalem. Don't miss it. They were convinced that the kingdom of God literally, in physical form, was going to come at once. And that motivated many people in the crowd. So that's why Jesus told a parable before he got there, somewhere between Jericho and Jerusalem. He told the parable, the ten minas, as it's called. It's 
It's a parable that Jesus said a noble person of birth was going to a distant country to appoint himself as king. And he gave to his servants certain uh, valuable uh, minas, talents, sometimes it's translated, and they were to multiply these, and then when he would come back, give him what was rightfully his. Multiple times in that parable, he talks about the king coming, and the parable ends with the king rejected. So you have two messages going on here. Many people in the crowd thinking he's going to set up the kingdom, and yet Jesus just told them in a parable that when the king comes, they're going to reject him. So what will happen? (laughs) A little bit of both on Palm Sunday. So verse 28 says, after Jesus had said this parable of the menace, he went up on to Jerusalem. And as you come up toward the city, on the east side of the, of the hill called Mount of Olives, there are two cities, two villages. Verse 29 says he went to Bethpage and Bethany on the hill called Mount of Olives. And it was there that he sent two of his disciples to actually go into the village. We pick it up with verse 30. Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. No one has ever ridden? In the Luke account, it uses the word colt. In the Matthew account, it uses the word donkey, and it talks about a donkey and the foal of a donkey or a colt. I think it is probably only one because the word and can also mean even. And I think what we're talking about is a very young donkey here that's never been ridden. That's kind of interesting, isn't it? What happens usually the first time when you try to ride a horse or a donkey? It's not going to be very subservient. But we're talking about Jesus here. Jesus said, now if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Simply say, the Lord needs it. Now, I'm convinced that all of this was planned. You've got one of two options, either the foreknowledge of God, which sees ahead, but often Jesus in his humanity did not use such divine insight. But I think this was arranged just as his coming into Jerusalem at the perfect hour was arranged to fulfill the verses of the Old Testament that predicted Messiah coming and that this is the day the Lord has made, Psalm 119, uh, 118. We will be glad in it. So that's indeed what they did. The unnamed disciples went and they found a colt that was tied up, just like Jesus said, and They took the colt, and the owners said, what are you doing? Just like Jesus said. They gave them the password. The Lord needs it. Ah, okay. That's what I was waiting to hear. And they took the colt away. Now, what's happening? Jesus is fulfilling prophecy. uh, Luke doesn't give us 
the uh, indication of this quite as clearly as Matthew does. We read in Matthew 21, verse 4, these words. This took place, the getting of the colt, the donkey. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Which, which prophet? Zechariah. And then Matthew quotes Zechariah 9.9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, even a colt, the foal of a donkey. And so you've got this wonderful picture of Jesus not only coming at the right time, but Jesus riding on a donkey. By the way, here's a picture of that donkey. <laughs> and for a few bucks, you can ride on that donkey. But that donkey happens to be on the very trail that we're talking about that descends from the top of the Mount of Olives down to the Kidron Valley and into the city of Jerusalem. It's interesting, the Bible talks about a lot of famous donkeys. When you think about it, Abraham used the donkey to put the wood on for the sacrifice of his son Isaac. You've got Balaam's donkey, the only one who spoke. You have the donkey that is ridden by Solomon as he comes in to be acknowledged and anointed as the king, and Jehu will do the same thing in the book of 2 Kings. You see, the donkey, unlike in our time, was a noble beast and used by kings. In fact, kings would not ride on horses unless they were going to war, but they would ride on donkeys when they were coming for peace. Zechariah predicts that Messiah is going to come into this city, daughter of Zion, and you are to shout when he does, for he comes lowly, riding on a donkey. So there are two pictures here, the noble king on the donkey and the wonderful Messiah, the king, on a lowly beast of burden. Samuel used a donkey's jawbone to kill thousands and then made a funny riddle. He used a donkey's bone to make donkeys of the people. The words were a little harsher than that. <clears throat> it's interesting, though, that Mary's donkey is not mentioned unless I'm missing it. We think she rode on the donkey, but anyhow, this has got to be the most famous donkey of all. For Messiah comes into the city fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. This was all planned to announce that Jesus is king. By the way, in Jericho, he said, The Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which is lost. I forgot to tell you another miracle that took place was a man by the name of Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus, who was blind and yelling out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And everyone around said, be quiet, you're disturbing him. And he yelled even louder, son of man, son of David, on the donkey of the Messiah, at the perfect time, coming in 
into the city at Passover. It bears all the signs of prearrangement. And it's very clear. The king has arrived. But not the kingdom. In its fullest sense. The king has come. But not yet the kingdom. So Jesus fulfills prophecy. Secondly, Jesus receives praise. It was predicted in Zechariah, was it not? That they were to shout, that they were to celebrate. And the Bible tells us that when Jesus got on the donkey, they put their coats, their cloaks on the donkey and spread their garments on the way. Verse 37, and when he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples, probably now numbering hundreds if not thousands of people, because all of the pilgrims were coming for the Passover, might have joined this group. And Jesus was, was performing miracles, like the salvation of a tax collector and the healing of a blind man. And oh yeah, by the way, in the crowd, probably joining them in Bethany, was the guy who was dead but now is alive. His name is Lazarus. Can't you see it? Hey, look over there. See that guy over there? He looks pretty good for a dead guy. I was at his funeral last week. And look at him. Amazing. Everything was set up to coronate the G Jesus as king, his coronation, his celebration, the whole grap crowd joyfully praising God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. What a perfect time. I found this picture, which is kind of an artist's conception, a rather old one. It, what, a, it, what it might have looked like as you would crest the top of the Mount of Olives and begin to descend down to the city of Jerusalem, except you have a mosque there in the city of Jerusalem, and that is not what they would have seen in that day. Here's another picture of the model city, and this is closer to what the pilgrims would have seen, except that city would have been filled with people everywhere. In the city, on the hillside, Rejoicing and singing and saying, Hosanna, save us. Save us now. Next month in England, they're going to be saying, God save the king. We cry out, God save us. For we are in need of salvation. I think it's hard to depict how joyous and exciting that must, this must have been. Except in every celebration, you have a few party poopers. Here they're called the Pharisees. And we read about them in verse 39. Some of the Pharisees. By the way, many of the Pharisees who were in the crowd had been in the crowd for a long time. Verse 39. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now, why would they have said that? I think there's a couple of possibilities. One, they don't want this parade to get out of hand and people to celebrate the coming of a king because the Romans are going to step in and not only shut the parade down, but shut down the whole operation of the Jews. That fear was present. But I think the more accurate answer is simply, this is not appropriate. 
He is not the king, the Pharisees are saying. He is not the coming Messiah. This is wrong. This is blasphemy. Tell your disciples to stop it. And Jesus responds in verse 40. I tell you, if they keep quiet, the very stones will cry out. Think of it, all creation is now groaning and waiting for that day of liberation when Christ comes again. And somehow creation is going to sing like we've never heard it before in its beauty. I don't know how audible it's going to be, but in poetic form, the trees are clapping their hands and shouting for joy. And so will redeemed humanity be praising almighty God. You see, the Pharisees were indeed convinced that Jesus was a fraud. Or at least they were afraid that this miracle worker might take their business away. You say, that's a pretty negative perspective. Well, that's the perspective of the scriptures. Because religion is not always a friend of Christ. Jesus tells you you don't need laws to gain salvation because you can't keep the laws on your own. The law is designed to show you you're a sinner. And if you have any objective view of the law, you are undone by it. Especially when Jesus says, The law said don't murder, but if you have hatred in your heart, you're a murderer. The law goes deeper than outward acts. The Pharisees didn't get that. But notice the people embraced him while the religious leaders rebuked him. And yet all praise was appropriate because he is Messiah the King. Do you know that you cannot praise Jesus enough? I loved our praise this morning. Wasn't that great? And I know we unveil it sometimes in different ways on Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, but every Sunday's Easter Sunday. And every day is a day that the Lord has made and we should rejoice and be glad in it and rejoice. So all is going so well. And now they're coming down the Mount of Olives. And the famous Jewish historian, Alfred Edersheim, said they stopped in the middle of the road because someone was weeping out loud. And that someone was Jesus. (laughs) Not supposed to cry at a party. Not supposed to cry at a coronation. But Jesus stops, verse 41. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. The prince of peace, riding on the kingly animal for peace, has come to bring peace, presenting himself, declaring himself, In unmistakable terms, I am Messiah. If you'd only known what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. If you ever go to Jerusalem and walk 
that Palm Sunday walk down toward the Kindrod Valley, you will come across this church constructed on the ruins of an old church. This church built in 1954, Dominus Flavit, written or designed by the architect of the Holy Land as Antonio Barluzzini is called. Several places throughout the Holy Land show his architecture and his beauty. But this church is unique. You'll notice on the four corners that there are bottles or uh, uh, vases that hold tears, even shaped in something of a teardrop. And this acknowledges that somewhere along the road, Jesus stopped and wept. If you, if you notice on the lower right-hand side, there's a beautiful window with some grating. If you go inside and look out that window, you see a sight of Jerusalem that is amazing. And at this place, to read these words from Luke, and by the way, Luke is the only one that tells us about the weeping Jesus. It's not that the other ones didn't believe it. It's just that Luke is pointing it out. In light of the rebuke of the Pharisees, he's the only one that points that out too. And in light of the rejection that Messiah is receiving. The Son of God in tears, the wondering angels see. Be thou astonished, O my soul. He sheds these tears for thee. He weeps. For those who turn, the very thing that would bring you peace is the very thing that you are rejecting. The very one who is your savior is the very one you turn from. And all hope is lost. Jesus goes on in verse 43 to make this prediction. The days will come upon you, Jerusalem, when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Notice the picture of the destruction. If you go back just a little bit, the stones have been uncovered from that very destruction. You see, 40 years later, the general Titus and the Roman armies came down and they did this very thing. They besieged the city of Jerusalem. The Jewish historian believed that God had sided with the Romans on that day. For dead bodies were flung over the wall, including children or bodies thrown over the wall, dashed to the ground, as it says, the city of peace became a graveyard. And Titus himself, Josephus, tells us when he rode around to see the destruction of the city and the bodies lying everywhere and the blood, he said he groaned and he lifted up his hands toward heaven and he called God as his witness and said, this is not of my doing. What do you mean? You brought the armies you order the soldiers. You cause the destruction. But you know, maybe he's right. This is not of his doing. This is the people who rejected him 
And to reject Christ is to be lost. And when you are lost, all the judgment that is due, the wages of sin comes upon you. And the destruction is destruction of a people who rejected their Savior. If you go to Rome, it was 12 years later that the younger brother of Titus built this arch of Titus. You can still see it today, the, the arch of his victory over the Jews. And to look closer, you will see in relief a menorah and the Roman soldiers taking away many of the things from the temple. The next slide. Why was this done? Well, if you go down to verse 44, it says, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Or literally, you missed the day of your visitation. Or as one translation has it, you missed God's moment. God was visiting you and you didn't recognize him. God was here and you didn't honor him. God came to save you and you rejected him. So Jesus weeps out of compassion and he warns out of concern and he weeps for you and me and he warns us. Don't miss God's moment. When is God's moment for me? Today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. God's moment is right now. God's moment for you is today if you've never trusted him. Talk about divine intention and planning. He brought you here, maybe even against your will, but you're here so that you might know that Jesus weeps for you. And he came to save you. Don't miss the moment. But if you hear in your heart, turn from your sin and embrace him as your savior. Many years ago, a king was having a little bit of trouble in his kingdom. There was some insurrection. He had been a good king for the most part. He wanted to get to the bottom of it, so he disguised himself in the clothes of a peasant and walked among his people. He came into one conversation of some people that were very critical of him, and they were talking about how much they wanted to be rid of him and even hinted maybe at a plan to get rid of him. And then he took off his cloak and revealed who he was, and they bowed, a little too late, and they said, we didn't know it was you, or we would not have done this. Sin blinds the hearts and minds of people so they can't see Jesus. They couldn't see him then. Many of the people couldn't see he was Messiah. And by Friday, what happens? He's crucified. He knew that was coming. 
because it wasn't time for the full kingdom, but it was time for the king. And the king indeed will come again. He is king. Don't miss this moment. Let's pray. Lord, I hope in heaven we'll have a chance to go back and see some of these scenes, how exciting this would be, and yet how tragic it would be to see the rejection that takes place later on in the week. Oh Lord, I pray that we would not be among those who rebuke you, among those who cry out, crucify him. May we be among those who repent and believe. Oh, Lord, let us not miss the moment of your grace. While there is still time and space to turn from our sin and to embrace you with all of our hearts, with all of our heart, Lord, I pray today some who are listening to my voice might turn from their sin and trust you. You are king. You came to save them. Will they take advantage of the moment? In Jesus' name, amen.